Hi, everyone. Our second full day of practicing together, loving kindness and awareness, um, beautiful qualities of heart and mind. How's it going? <laughs> Tonight we'll talk about the, I will speak about the hindrances because it's, this is a good time in the retreat to talk about sort of what comes up that instead of loving kindness, like um, this chant, you know, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. I would not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. <laughs> not, I don't know, something like, like that. Easily satisfied. I don't know. It's beautiful. It is. It's beautiful. And w- we could give a whole talk on this um, chant, which is a kind of a beautiful teaching in itself. But it's kind of a surprise at times how. Um, just as when we decide that we're going to pay attention to the breath, the first thing that happens is you find out how you can't really stay and it just goes off. How when you try to organize your mind around the intention to become kinder, a lot of aversion can come up or everything that feels like I hate metta practice. (laughs) When I taught loving kindness in Mexico, um, one man was quite, had a lot of difficulty with when I spoke so much about the difficult qualities that come up. Um, But it's important to be able to deal with them and include them in our process and not just think that it's something wrong that shouldn't be happening. There's this New Yorker cartoon I have of, there's a couple standing in a wedding chapel and um, the priest is speaking to them with this little book Will you stand by him through humiliating revelation after humiliating revelation? (laughs) And then once you're sure it couldn't possibly get any worse when even more humiliating revelations come to light. (laughs) It's a little bit like continuing and persevering in our metta practice, our meditation practice in general, um, and being willing to miss the Oscars for what's happening here. (laughs) I wanted to mention that um, when I first arrived here at IMS, I was looking at the staff bulletin board where there's often very interesting things posted and it seemed that one of the staff had written a book. Um, There's a picture of her on the cover and she's kind of looking joyous and it's called uh, Pine Nuts and the Brain. And I was like, okay. And it will revolutionize your understanding of your mind. And I was like, wow, though that's great. It sounded really funny, and maybe it had some kind of secret in it. Well, it turned out that actually there was no such book. It was a sort of a joke that was perpetrated <laughs> by someone who's here on the retreat. And I do have permission from that staff member to talk about her book, and maybe she'll actually write it one day. I don't know. <laughs> but... Pine nuts in the brain, it's also metta and your heart or something like that. Metta, this is your mind on metta meditation. <laughs> we heard in the groups today that um, some people who came here expecting to have a beautiful time are feeling really agitated instead, and some people who are really worried about how the retreat would be are 
liking it a lot and feeling peaceful. So it's very unexpected. And almost no matter what era of your practice you're in, whether it's your first time or later times, there's always surprises and discoveries to be made. And what's really important is how we relate to what's happening, of course. That is something that cannot be said enough to try to have a kind, kinder mind and to learn how to love and care for ourselves and come home to ourselves and be able to be comfortable here in our heart and our mind in order to be able to be like able to show other people what's possible as a human being, you know, to be a refuge for ourselves and for other people. Um, kind of gives the world what the world might need. One of the reasons I think that loving kindness is called a boundless state or a limitless state is that a little is a lot also. Like when we think of boundless, it seems like it has to be vast. And eventually the circle of where what we're including, you know, in terms of the sense of space becomes very vast and diverse kinds of beings and stuff. But these ways of including our internal mental states is almost like the ground for that. And it's, you know, it's also a vast process of what happens on this first day when we try to um, send loving kindness to ourselves or to a benefactor and we find either that it's very difficult to care for ourselves um, or we've come up against stuff or it's hard to have a benefactor or really trust someone else, you know, whatever it might be for each of us. But the assumption that's basic to loving-kindness practice is that it's possible it can be done, that we can retrain our heart and mind. And it's a subtle process. It's It's not obvious and it's a little bit different for each person, just as the phrases that resonate are different and the way the practice is given to us is different, um, depending on who taught us and who we are and how we hear it and all those things. And yet there's something uh, about our basic humanity that knows the value of goodness and the thing, the intention that brought all of us here is to recognize that it feels there's a rightness to being kind. It's important. So recent, just I'd like to stay with that a little bit to, so that we know that this home that we can find in ourselves that often feels like this inner self that can often feel like sort of toxic and yicky and stuff like that, that is part of the mind's capacity to get deluded and not see clearly and not see everything or only see parts of life. Part of the metta practice is opening to, um, as Sharon was saying, stretching to include things that we aren't used to including. And oddly, one of the things that we overlook or don't acknowledge profoundly enough is our human goodness, our willingness to help. And there are recently more and more work being done scientifically in this area. And it's not namby-pamby work, it's very cutting-edge, interesting science about toddlers and chimpanzees, like trying to push back into, is this really part of human nature? And it seems that within the cultural structure that science is, there's an agreement that it's being proven that you don't have to learn it, that it's innate in human beings and 
chimpanzees that if we see another person in distress, uh, we want to help, even when we're really little. A chimpanzee, if an experimenter sort of drops us, is trying to clean off a table and the sponge goes off the edge of the table and they reach down to get it, the chimpanzee will lift it up. So will a baby do that. And I like to just think and dwell upon some of those things. As they say in neuroscience, what if you spend a little bit of time contemplating that stuff, you create a connection in your mind with it so that it's easier for it to come back later. So there's no need to learn it, and there's no need for an external reward that people do it, this kindness kind of for its own sake, for how it feels to connect, expressing something that's true about us and about our nature and about some kind of understanding that might be even preverbal that we are connected, um, that someone else's mind is like our mind, and as much as we want to be happy and not drop the sponge or whatever and succeed and complete things so someone else might want to. And yet it's equally true that um, the world is not filled with collaboration and our mind also has these difficult aspects in it that occlude or disturb or interrupt or make people seem other or make other kinds of beings seem like they're not worthy of notice the way that our self-sense corrals everything and our experience feels private and we have like representations of things outside us and uh, we don't have direct access to other people's internal mental states and sort of it's that too is something about the way the world is. So in the Buddhist practice we or this loving kindness practice let's not even say it's Buddhist that we seek to let go of the separations inside ourself from parts of ourself and acknowledge our wholeness through a path that sometimes feels difficult and as a way of recognizing that all of us are equally dignified and worthy of love and care. And just as our amazing body has muscles that adapt to the kind of stress that's put on them or not put on them, you know, that you can make a little bicep or you start doing more sit-ups and your abs get stronger or you eat more and your body gets a little bigger and that kind of thing. So our mind also adapts and changes depending on what we do to it or for it or with it. I remember going to a circus performance in Edinburgh a couple of years ago where these there were some people from Australia. There were five young people. And there was a young woman who was like so strong that uh, one of the young men could like jump onto her shoulders and she could hold him. You know, she just was so tremendously powerful in her body. And surely she had trained to do that. Surely she had strengthened her body like that. And surely he had become agile like that due to practicing in the body and mind to coordinate it, to be able to do that. And one of them was like, I don't know, some of you may have seen these kinds of incredible physical circuses. One, there was this pole and he, he would start off at the top with his head pointing toward the ground and just let go and plummet toward the ground and stop himself before his head hit, but leaving like about this much. And we're like, oh my God. You know, but they were able to do that every time through the highly uh, intensive training that they had done. And just like that, I thought, so our mind also can be disciplined and trained 
to a high degree or to, you know, medium or small, depending on how we work with the internal energies that we do have. Or at least, I was speaking last night with one of the working guests to learn how to fall on the floor without hurting yourself. That could be like the hindrance talk. (laughs) Sort of working with gravity so that when you find yourself kind of being pummeled around, you can work with it more skillfully. Because the energies of the hindrances can be fuel for our transformation and the brokenness of our heart can also be the kind of opening of our heart. It's part of the journey. That's not stuff that shouldn't be happening and it's not stuff that we should disinclude or disavow. There's the African-American Bikuni Panyawati who lives in South Carolina and is a real social activist, um, really walking her talk and doing very controversial things. Like she has a shelter for girls and she has does work in India and people have said, well, as a bhikkhuni nun of the Theravadan order, you should just contemplate. You shouldn't be doing these charitable works. Um, Funny thing, isn't it? But she speaks of having a broken heart and a disciplined mind as kind of the stance of a practitioner. So it's not to not let in the difficult things that are in us and outside of us. But part of what's the purification of our heart and our mind and our body is actually allowing some of the stuff that's difficult to come to the surface and being honest and looking at it and relaxing because we're not trying to control it or hiding it from ourselves or from other people. Let's just say to feel the wholeness of each being here that we've each in some way been entrusted with ourself, as the Stoic philosopher Epictetus once said, You know, there's certain things that we, no one else can quite do for us. It helps that we have each other to do this with and that we have role models and benefactors and understandings of the lawfulness of the unfolding of the process. And then there's a place in us where we do have to put some stuff into action ourselves, like from our own heart and will and Maybe that's not even like from the ego. It may be from before. It may be just nature or the universe, like trying to find itself or trying to right itself that we're part of that process might be actually bigger than us. But it's paradoxical that we need to open up to stuff that that feels difficult or stuff that feels unwanted. I've learned recently over the last few years that um, starting to feel a lot of anxiety and kind of like a hyperactive quality in my life. And I started to think like, well, what is this? Like, it's not just like being busy or something like that. It was kind of like, "Eh." and I realized through a process of sort of therapy, meditation practice, that um, the anxiety was due to not wanting to feel certain things in myself. It was easier to be anxious and sort of high strung than actually be enraged or like sad or worried or things like that, that it was a a form of protection, which was really surprising. Um, So what did I not want to feel? That has become a kind of inquiry. And feeling it wasn't that easy, but it reduced the anxiety. So it was kind of like the feeling was there anyway. 
So why have both? I just think it's part of how wonderfully and mysteriously we are made, like in a sense how complicated we are. Part of the complicatedness that's wonderful is the humanness or the difficulty we get into, the tangled ability, and the other part is the ability to heal and um, do things that require a kind of courage and a kind of reaching out, which is what makes this path a kind of adventure for those who like it. I used to be a travel journalist and I went to crazy parts of the world and met crazy people and um, was offered jobs like, would you like to go to an island where experiment where they let loose experimental monkeys with AIDS and hope that one of them doesn't bite you and (laughs) stuff like this. (laughs) And part of me sort of misses that life, but um, (laughs) the inner adventure of letting stuff come into awareness and sort of requires um, as much courage, I think. And the reward is really much sweeter to me, I think, to feel unbound internally. David Foster Wallace wrote um, in one of his testaments, this kind of freedom has much to recommend it. There are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention, awareness, and discipline and effort, and being able to truly care about other people and sacrifice for them in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. for other people and ourself, I would say. So these forces of the, called the hindrances, um, vexations or fermentations of mind, are, um, we've all had them, we all know them, and they're the places, the whirlpools where we get stuck and we get cut off from knowing that we're basically a good person or basically kind, where we can get identified with thinking that I'm just a really hateful person who doesn't know how to love, obviously, because of look what's coming up, um, either in the retreat or in my life. As Sharon said, how wonderful and compassionate of the Buddha to give us a list and that there are only five. <laughs> kind of, that's great. <laughs> Part of what's fun it, about it is that there is a kind of power in recognizing and naming them one by one. So I'll go through them and um, sort of to say like, oh, I'm, I'm just feeling really hate-filled right now, has a way of being soothing because of the power of, the, of attention, the power of just saying what something is. Like something about how truth and balance can even be contained in just sort of knowing what something is, a quality of recognition. But I think I've already... I hope I've laid out that when they're called hindrances, it's not like saying that these are sins or that they need to be eliminated or that the, it's a battle against uh, the thou shalt not feel, thou shalt not be this way, that these are natural energies in our body and mind and that in working with them skillfully, our practice gets deeper. They don't need to be, in a certain sense, opposed there's a skillful approach and the way of opening to them that's skillful. Sharon has written a book called uh, Loving Your Enemies and it has plenty of stuff about this. Um, It will be in the welcome room at the end of the retreat if you want it. But 
Shinzen Young, the Vipassana or Zen teacher, says um, these internal forces that we would call the inner enemy, maybe, um, you try to love them to death, <laughs> something, or as Abraham Lincoln said, that you def- defeat or conquer your enemy by making it into your friend. Um, but it's kind of a process. You've seen. <laughs> so the first approach that I have when I find myself in a hindrance um, is that I try to have some respect for it, respect for what's happening, and to th- think that this is happening for a reason, even if I don't necessarily know what it is. That generally these forces of the heart and mind, they're trying to bring us to happiness and stability in some way or other. And trying to protect us from things that are difficult or, you know, remember not to approach that person or hang on to something that feels really precious or get us away or something like that or protect us. And for me, I find that super helpful because the struggle against it or trying to eliminate it or blaming myself or, you know, all the other pathways other than respect and a kind of quality of saying like, well, there is something good about this, or maybe in some other situation it's important, or, you know, okay, well, I guess I just, you know, feel a little nervous right now, something like that. It's okay, is part of the skillfulness. Um, There's lots of work on the evolution of the brain and why, you know, worries about our survival are adaptive, or worries about having enough comfort are adaptive, or the feeling of a need to connect is something really beautiful. But then it generally gets to excess and out of hand and starts to become destructive and painful and cause suffering instead. So that's where we need to start to work with them. So in a sense, it's actually good. For example, say when we get distracted from the breath in the breathing meditation, it's actually good that we can clear our mental screen, right? Like imagine if the first thing that you paid attention to in the day got stuck there for the rest of your life. You know, like the fact that our attention sort of shifts and lets new things in is good. And sometimes if our mind just sort of fades off of where we want it to be planted, we can say, well, it's great that I'm not stuck with what everything that comes in. And in our practitioner's mind, when we open up a sense of kindness in our mind and immediately what comes in is all our woundedness to be healed, maybe that's also a good thing that the space for this feels like an invitation to our heart and mind uh, to let things come up. Adyashanti says we're ultimately going to have to open our heart to the whole world and everything that could happen. Why? Because we're not truly separate. So when we have the will to open our heart or the willingness to open our heart and be intimate with things that we don't like, whether inside or outside, that scare us, when that intimacy, out of that intimacy, we will find a way in which the core of us can express itself. There's no longer a boundary for our love. So to start on the list of the hindrances, desire, wanting, craving, let's say it can be a beautiful force in our mind at times, you know, that the beauty of our sexual nature, of our creativity, of wanting to find solutions and 
all of the pleasant and kind of life-affirming things that are happening in our world are worth celebrating and rejoicing about. This is not the hindrance in any way. Um, You know, there's often a feeling that desire is wrong, and it's not wrong. However, when it becomes a fixation or when we see that we cling to things being a certain way because we feel so shaky of what would happen if it wasn't like this, we can see that the beautiful aspects of the world are not the only aspects. And when we're frightened to feel the wholeness of the world, then our happiness can never be stable or complete. So isolating ourselves within sort of a desire for certain things that feel a certain way, like we can see in the metta practice that sometimes that juiciness of it when it's really working and flowing and we feel that exquisite like drop of love that's like the juice at the bottom of the fruit salad that's just so delicious. (laughs) And we so want it to come back when it sort of disperses and instead we're just feeling really grumpy or threatened or lonely or isolated or bitter or remembering things that we really don't want to remember or anticipating things that we hope will never happen and how do we get back to that sweet, sweet place? We feel lost and broken when we don't have the pleasure, that the pleasure of that internal smooth state. So it's interesting to look at how soon can we turn toward the unstable part of us with love, affection, and kindness, rather than only wanting something that isn't here, only craving and fixating and saying, like, I can only be okay if I'm feeling stable. What would it be like to open up? So, and then what happens is that we get angry, that we're greedy, and we feel aggressive when things don't go our way and sort of the other hindrances can come in and start piling on on top of that. What would happen if we could feel intimate with the very experience of feeling a lack in ourself without needing to go somewhere else? What would happen if the kind and loving mind could touch upon the lackingness that's in our heart with love? It's really an illusion that we can't be complete or happy unless certain conditions are fulfilled, but it's part of how we're geared. And it can become so disruptive in our life, like whenever we're intimate with someone and we really do tend to have, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, an agenda for how they need to be. (laughs) Like, have you ever seen those videos on YouTube of stupid things all couples fight about? Like, you left the toilet seat up, (laughs) you know? For example, like, if you don't put it down, you're not respecting me. Something like that. Or which way the toilet roll is rolled. (laughs) How the towels are on the towel hanger, those things. Or for, in some cultures, you know, the children are expected to do things so much in a certain way in order for the family to be um, okay and the parents to be calm, like the strong expectations that parents put on their children and how hard that can be as a child, rather than saying um, what would be most helpful for this being to unfold and to find their gift and find their way and what could I provide 
to help this being feel supported rather than how can this being meet what I need? It stops really being about a generous kind of love at that time. So the remedy for that desire, quality, the fixation and having an agenda is um, trying to have a sense of the completeness and wholeness and goodness in each of us and in each other rather than relating as much to the agenda that we have, feeling the enoughness of where we are, um, maybe that our life is okay the way it is, and to try to find our way to that. Um, sometimes the phrases can be really very helpful, you know, may I be happy. May I be happy that I'm here where I am, just as I am. If you'd like to adapt the phrases, how wonderful beings are. How wonderful you are in your being. James Barras, when he teaches a course on joy and happiness, um, says when you're looking for happiness, you know, don't go for the bells and whistles. Just a simple amount of contentment is maybe, it's actually considered higher than ecstasy, really. The simple well-being of appreciating what's here and now. So often this quality of expectation leads to trying too hard, really pushing. And when we can afford to sort of pull back and do a little bit less, and then it's as if the world kind of comes in and meets us at when we're not, you know, you're kind of straining past the place where you can connect, kind of pulling back a little bit. So the next one that's big in the metta practice is anger, irritation, annoyance, rage, disappointment, all those things. And Jared, one of the retreat support people who's sitting there in the back, told a joke the other day that um, comes from Jonathan Faust from the Insight um, community in Washington, D.C. There's a joke about the patient who's feeling really angry and despairing and depressed and bitter, and their therapist says, well, why don't you go on a retreat? You'll feel better. And they go to the retreat, and they feel anger and despair and hate. And he comes back and says says to the therapist, you told me I would feel better. And he said, yeah, you feel it better. You feel your anger better. You feel your <laughs> despair better. <laughs> what could be good about this? <laughs> well, um, studies show that those who are able to feel a greater range of feelings actually are able to be happier. Right? And that, again, is counterintuitive. We don't like to feel angry and despairing and stuff. But if we can let the feelings in and connect with them with an open mind and heart, uh, it's actually conducive to well-being rather than something to run away from. And of course, moving away from feelings that are uncomfortable is an important protection of our psyche. You know, that, um, you know, if it our hand is in the fire and it's being burned, then you take your hand out of the fire. And sometimes being able to say no to situations or to things that are actually going wrong in the world is an important ability to be able to be change something or have something come into being that hasn't come into being yet. So there can be a fierceness in kind, being kind. Like the kind action is not always just soothing and saying, oh, it's so wonderful, you know. No. I got a um, 
letter, uh, email letter. I'm editing something together with a group of people. We're working on a common project. And they said, well, here's the letter that's going to go out. And I added a sentence to it that the other person did not like. So they said that it sounded condescending and chiding and it was really an insensitive sentence and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, you know, couldn't you just say you didn't like it? (laughs) Like, did it have to go like all the way to sort of pinpointing where it was coming from, like according to how they perceived it? Like, I didn't think it was like that. And I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's better to leave. I can agree to leave it out. But that other part felt really shaming. So I decided that I would write the person back and say, "Um, that made me feel bad when you said that. I didn't think you needed to say it. I'm happy to take it out and I agree that maybe, you know, it could be more sensitive and trust that people already understand it and they don't need to be told, that's okay. Um, But I just want to say that, you know, you had a strong reaction and I'm not really taking on all those other attributions that you made. And it felt really good. It was really scary, but it was a good feeling to kind of stand up and say, no, I'm not going to let this sort of come in. And then I, can, I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, well, I wondered if some of that was true-ish, but I wanted them to keep their angry feelings. And the person never responded. Like, it was as if I never said anything. And I thought, all right, well, they don't need to respond. I've done what needs to be done, you know, in myself to not take on the identity that they were trying to attribute to, you know, or the motivation. I, and I thought my motivation was really to try to make, make things better. And it's actually a motivation that I share with that other person too. So maybe we'll have a conversation about it someday. The actor George Takai says, each of us bears the responsibility to reject hate, whatever its form and whatever its justification. A nation filled with hate can des- devastate a people. So it is true that allowing the mind in a certain way to hold that quality of anger and prejudice and reducing other people to rubble is kind of not a good thing. It's not a good force in our world. Um, That's when it starts to be called a hindrance, that all we can see is what's wrong with us. And we can become very harsh and vindictive and unforgiving in our minds. Um, The Buddha said that hatred is like a disease of the mind and that when we feel that we can sort of see through it or go past it or replace it with loving kindness um, it's like being healed from the disease so the first thing that that is good when we find ourselves in that place is not going to war with the war that's inside like when we feel a lot of inner conflict to see if it's possible just to see it as it is it's sort of what I was saying as the naming thing to just know that this is happening, this is how it feels for me right now. Um, I'm feeling angry. And there may be a part of it that's true, that there has been an injustice, a violation of some kind. Underneath the anger, there's very often a sense of being hurt or being shamed. Um, Can we go to the place even in our body where the feeling is most strong and bring kindness, kindness to the being who's undergoing this experience of anger right now. Can we forgive? The young Buddhist writer Lodro Rinsler um, writes, he's created this comic book superhero named Gentleness Man, who's like Superman, 
He says, gentleness, gentleness man was born one day when he realized that he didn't need to be such a jerk to himself. <laughs> and then he spent the rest of his life learning how to master his habitual desire to act out in harmful ways. His unique power is to offer kindness in all situations, including finding difficult things inside ourselves, things that we uh, deplore and might not like to see. So kindness is possible. Kindness is always possible. It's a move that our heart can make and that we're training in here. There's, I'll conclude the anger part with the, the Buddha has, there's a um, cartoon of the Buddha who's sitting on this huge pedestal and someone's being brought in front of him in chains and the Buddha has a gavel in his hand and is saying, for your crimes I sentence you to five consecutive lifetimes of misery. <laughs> so not how Buddhist practice should be, it's kind of the opposite. Um, as the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness, it's not um, any kind of ism or putting anger on top of that. The next hindrance is uh, sleepiness or sloth and torpor, which um, we've talked about as the physical side of it, the physical experience of dullness and occludedness and falling asleep. And I'd like to talk about it also a little bit from the emotional side, um, the sort of despair or contraction or giving up, the feeling of like, I just, I can't do another phrase. It either hurts too much or I'm not worthy of my own kindness, so I'm not even going to try, kind of thing. Like where we just sort of collapse um, and don't do anything. We go into kind of paralysis. And in a sense, I'd like to say that even this kind of thing can be a sensible move, you know, to um, not feel or not reach out and uh, like a, sense of protecting ourselves against disappointment. And what's important at these times is to practice kindness in a form of kind of deeper listening inside ourself, like to really hear the sadness or really hear the despair or the unwillingness and how does that feel and can we evoke kindness for the experience of feeling like we're in a prison, which is the comparison that the Buddha put for... um, sloth, torpor, that you're kind of stuck somewhere, you're kind of in the dark. Here's the poet uh, David White uh, on something to embrace uh, this experience. Time to go into the dark, where the night has eyes to recognize its own. Here you can be sure you are not beyond love. This dark can be your home tonight. The night will give a horizon farther than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one where you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of solitude to learn that anything or anyone that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. So even in this apparent sloth and torpor, there's actually often a kind of deep energy, a deep quietness. Um, So the first invitation is to open to it as itself. Then there are invitations to sort of energize a little bit, like go for a walk or look at some light or something when sometimes you feel like really internally collapsed and 
succumbing to it just feels almost dangerous. So it's good sometimes to sort of counteract it. You know, uh, last week I was in I was in proximity with the ocean, and I had this wetsuit that was supposed to protect me from the coldness of the water. And I had this determination that I was going to go swimming, and I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off because I had gone in and I put my feet in the water without the wetsuit, and it was like I really don't want to do that. And finally I did it. I went in and it was so exhilarating. It was so fantastic. I was really glad that I had kind of made the move even though there was a huge amount of sort of reluctance and desire to simply just protect myself. So there is an invitation at times to sort of reach out and reach for sort of the light and find those places of perception of something good in life, like Sharon was saying, to stretch and change your focus. Look for something that you're grateful for, even a small thing, like the fact that the chair holds you up or that the bed is soft or that it wasn't entirely horrible the entire time yesterday, (laughs) something like that. Someone's face that you like, some memory that makes you feel warm inside. It's not a crime to go to those places of comfort when they're needed. It's like they're there in a way for a reason. Um, Those places in our life where there has been or there will be or there can be a sense of beauty and a sense of the mind being able to open. Um, So look for those and be willing to make those connections. Restlessness and worry... Um, The fourth hindrance, again, they can be a kind of agitation that's physical. And although the winter energy and being enclosed and kind of that may contribute to this retreat being a little more sleepy, some of you may have experienced restlessness already, have you? Yeah. Anywhere but here, right? Anything but the sitting going on for one more minute. Um, Sleepiness sometimes is replaced by restlessness in the third day of the retreat, so you can see what that happens, uh, uh, how that happens. Let's say it's not wrong to be active in our life or to do things or to move our body, but this quality of agitation often, um, I was saying it can mask deeper emotions that we don't want to feel, I said near the beginning of the talk. And it's also important to look at how um, being busy has become a kind of disease for us or like an identity that people have. Like we never get a moment's rest. We never stop. And what is it driven by? Like sometimes it's a social myth about who you should be or how you should be, how perfect we all need to be. And this perfectionism drives us to where we lose all intimacy with ourselves or other people. I'm kind of at the sub-point of this talk is that intimacy, vulnerability, imperfection are places where our loving kindness is able to make a connection. Um, Busyness is considered a form of laziness in Tibetan Buddhism, which is an interesting thing. It's along with lazy. It's because you don't want to really put the energy into being with something. In a way, it's easier to uh, go back to your Twitter or something like that or do an endless Google search on strange Japanese commercials or something (laughs) like that, (laughs) which at times can be supportive and interesting, (laughs) but for how long? (laughs) 
So the laziness of this is reorganizing our heart and mind is a lot more difficult task than cleaning out the bookshelf at home. As some of us have noticed where our mind goes, um, I've heard in any way some of the groups that these ideas about tidying and stuff like that is take a refuge. Um, so what does it mean in this restless life where, to me, the way I experience it, it may not be true for you, so I'm just saying, uh, to approach everything with a feeling as if it were some kind of obligation, you know, that it must be done before I can connect with myself. I can connect with myself when the laundry's done, when it's out of the dryer, when everything in my environment has been settled, then I can settle. When my tasks are complete, when my inbox is empty, it will never be empty. It just won't. Um, that's how life is. We have to kind of take the time. And that requires a kind of act of will. But comfort and peace are even better antidotes than approaching things with a sense of obligation. Because if you say, well, now I have to sit, it just becomes another obligation and you don't want to do it. Um, so trying on the feeling of like, it's okay, I don't have anything to prove. I don't have to be a certain way. My practice doesn't have to become anything. I can just be here with how I am, as I am. Trying to bring a spacious attention to things, to slow down, Noticing that, in a certain way, restless anxiety can be is a sort of overfocused and narrow. It seems sort of big, but it's actually, in a certain way, very focused attention, jumping to conclusions. I'm going to die if the bell doesn't ring. Have you noticed that really constricted quality? I must move. So gentle habit, gentle movement, gentle kindness, gentle mind helps with that having a lot of space for, can almost imagine that your heart or your mind is so huge that this restless being is held within like the whole universe. Finally, doubt, the doubting mind. Why am I here? What am I doing? I shouldn't be here. I should be doing some other kind of workshop and singing or channeling or I should just be at home doing my income taxes or it would be way more fun to watch the Oscars and how am I going to get to the end of the week without knowing that? (laughs) Who won? It's overthinking things. Like the mind, actually the kind of doubt that's productive is a kind of inquiry about the nature of life. There was a question in the Q&A a couple days ago like who is this? Who is the beloved? And who is doing the welcoming? You know, there's can be very profound questions about life that are really deep and that we don't know and in a certain way we may never know, like the mystery of our life. To touch that is not what's being talked about in the sense of doubt. Doubt is sort of overthinking and wondering like, well, if I do have a next life, what's it going to be like? You know, is it going to be based on my bad habits or my good habits or just whatever your mind might do, or like if this teacher's um, habit is something that I don't like, then does that mean that the whole thing is wrong? Um, Those kinds of things, skeptical doubt. It's compared to crossing a desert. It's like 
the mind starts to think that it knows much better and you kind of climb up into your head and start fighting with things without really making a real connection through the present moment. So the antidote to doubting is actually a deep heart's attention to what's going on in the moment, to really being willing to come back into being present. I'm reminded of the um, film where the executioner looked into Carla Fay's eyes as he was wheeling her to her lethal injection, and she looked up at him and said she forgave him. And he could never sort of intellectualize again about you know, killing another human being, he stopped doing it. He left his mental fabrications and came right into the heart. So there's something in what's called the hindrance of doubt that is not knowing really where our heart is. And I think it's important to come back to the place of the heart. I'll read one more story about um, really the deep kind of knowing. When I was 10, my younger brother and I spent several hours alone each day after school because our parents worked. Um, And she writes that uh, members of uh, women uh, who were in the army were renting an apartment above. And at 4.30, I would hear the clicking of their heels as they walked from the parking lot. I'd peep between the slats of our Venetian blinds and watch them. They were so beautiful in their starched uniforms with shiny buttons, their dark hair glistening beneath their caps. I saw them laugh and gaze into each other's eyes, and sometimes the taller one touched the other's arm. I imagined them in their kitchen nuzzling one another as they stirred the pots and then sitting at the table and feeding each other little bites. At night, I pictured them falling asleep in each other's arms. They were two women in love. Then the woman writes that she worked up the courage to approach them and tell them how beautiful she thought that they were and how how great I thought their caps were. The shorter one smiled, took it off, and handed it to me. It's yours, she said. Then they moved out, and the little girl is wearing this army hat all the time. One Sunday afternoon, our family drove to the park to see the fall colors. My brother wore his baseball hat, and I wore my cap perched at an angle, just as the women, army women had done. At the park, as I was getting out of the car, my cap hit the top of the door and fell right into a dog turd. I reached to retrieve it, and my mother said, Nope, you leave that right there. I was devastated and certain that if my brother's hat had been soiled, my mother would have picked it up and cleaned it. Eleven years later, I came out as a lesbian. My mother said she'd suspected long before, recalling my early fascination with our neighbors and my sorrow at the loss of the cap. She confessed that she'd hoped that leaving it behind on the dog turt that day might somehow change who I was. So, let's not have doubt about where our heart is. Please, everyone here, let's share that beautiful intention. Um, Because we are changing our world, our inner world, our outer world, as we'll see as we include more and more beings in our loving kindness. And there's always something new to learn on this journey. It's, we're not perfect, we're not final. Our mind seems to construct that you know, we'll stop sometime and, you know, this will all be perfected. But it's something more like openness is love. Opening the heart to what's happening with kindness, that's it. So if we're not able to offer the phrase with openness, then whatever blocks us, we become open to that. So 
there's always an option to be open. As Sharon has said, you know, you offer it as a gift, and if there's a constriction, then you come to the mindfulness. But the kindness is the offering, the kindness to what's going on inside. Ten things I learned from being a rock star was a um, Huffington Post article recently um, by a young Asian-American woman who had uh, joined a band with her boyfriend, and they'd had their first gig, and she... I'm not going to give you all of the 10 or all of the paragraphs that she wrote, but here's some of them. We all mess up and it's still awesome. We all mess up and nobody notices or it doesn't matter as much as we thought it would. Practice makes better. There is no perfect. Do the hard things that scare you and have fun. So thank you everyone for your kind attention. May we befriend the hindrances and discover our wholeness through the broken heart. I'll sit for a little, just a stilling of the mind and body. So loving kindness for the part of our heart that maybe just doesn't really know how. And that's okay. <laughs>